From New York, this is Democracy Now! Holding sites today and speaking to voters who are so excited to have an opportunity to what they believe is send Joe Biden a message that we are outraged and we are going to participate in democracy regardless. President Biden wins Michigan's Democratic primary, but over 100,000 vote uncommitted in protest over his support for Israel's assault on Gaza. We'll go to Michigan to speak with former Democratic Congress member Andy Levin, as well as Arab American pollster Jim Zogby. Then we look at the death of Aaron Bushnell, the active duty member of the U.S. Air Force who set himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., protesting U.S. support for the war in Gaza. I'm an active duty member of the United States Air Force, and I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. We'll speak with one of Aaron Bushnell's friends, a conscientious objector, and with retired Colonel Ann Wright. All that and more. Coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden won the Democratic primary in Michigan despite over 100,000 people casting their ballots for uncommitted as voters took part in a protest over Biden's support for Israel's assault on Gaza. Biden won about 81 percent of the vote in Michigan. 13.3 percent of voters were uncommitted. In recent weeks, a number of Arab-American groups led calls urging voters to choose uncommitted. The group Listen to Michigan had set a goal of 10,000 uncommitted votes, but they secured 10 times that number, receiving about one-sixth of Biden's vote total. Listen to Mission campaign organizer Leila Alabed spoke Tuesday night. I can't express enough the amazing team that has come together to put uncommitted on the map as everyone is looking at Michigan in order to save lives. I want to remind everyone that a vote uncommitted was a humanitarian vote. It was our vote to save as many lives as possible. Placing third in Michigan was Marianne Williamson, who supported a ceasefire in Gaza before dropping out of the race. Dean Phillips placed fourth. Many analysts say Biden's support for Israel could result in him losing the battleground state of Michigan in November. In Michigan's Republican primary, Donald Trump beat Nikki Haley 68 to 26 percent. Michigan Republicans will also hold a caucus on Saturday. During an interview with The Wall Street Journal, Nikki Haley warned a Trump victory in November could be, quote, suicide for our country. The U.N. Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food has accused Israel of committing war crimes by intentionally depriving food to Gaza. The official, Michael Fakhri, told The Guardian, quote, Israel's announced its intention to destroy the Palestinian people in whole or in part simply for being Palestinian. In my view, as a human rights expert, this is now a situation of genocide, he said.
This comes as the United Nations is warning a quarter of all Palestinians are one step away from famine. Ramesh Rajasingham, coordination director of the UN's humanitarian office, spoke Tuesday. And here we are at the end of February with at least 576,000 people in Gaza, one quarter of the population, one step away from famine, with one in six children under two years of age in northern Gaza suffering from acute malnutrition and wasting. In Gaza City, residents have described dire conditions where children have no food to eat. There is no food to feed my children, nor is there any bread. We came to the point where we are eating tree leaves. We are eating the food of this donkey. What more do you want? You are asking me why did I come here? I came because I want to take flour. Look, my leg is broken, and I came to take flour. I came to take flour. You are asking me why did I come? I came yesterday and people stepped over me. I came today even if I were to die. I want to take a bag of flour because I can't feed my children. I don't have anything to give my children to eat. Even if I die, I will stay. In other developments, representatives from Hamas and Fatah are scheduled to meet in Moscow Thursday to discuss forming a unified government. The meeting comes just days after the Palestinian prime minister and cabinet resigned amidst pressure by the U.S. and Arab countries. In media news, more than 50 prominent broadcast journalists have signed an open letter calling for unfettered access to Gaza. Signatories on the letter include journalists from the BBC, NBC, Sky News, CNN, ABC, and CBS. In the letter, they wrote, quote, We call on the government of Israel to openly state its permission for international journalists to operate in Gaza and for the Egyptian authorities to allow international journalists access to the Rafah crossing, unquote. Almost no international journalists have been allowed inside Gaza, except when embedded with the Israeli military. For the past five months, the world has relied on the reporting of Palestinian journalists who have been killed by Israeli forces in record numbers. By one count, over 125 journalists have lost their lives in Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has credited U.S. public support for Israel as being a key factor in allowing Israel to resist calls to end its war in Gaza. Netanyahu cited one poll that showed 82 percent of Americans support Israel. Netanyahu said, quote, this will help us continue the campaign until total victory, unquote. Other polls have painted a very different picture. A recent AP poll found half of U.S. adults said they believe Israel's actions have gone too far. Netanyahu's comments came after President Biden said Israel will, quote, lose support from around the world if it, quote, continues on its current path. President Biden hosted congressional leaders at the White House Tuesday for talks on averting a partial government shutdown and to push for passage of a $95 billion package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson's refused to schedule a vote on the military aid bill, which has already been approved by the Senate. In public remarks, Biden said the consequences of inaction on approving money for Ukraine are dire. The fifth largest wildfire in Texas history has forced a nuclear weapons facility outside Amarillo to temporarily pause operations Tuesday. The Smokehouse Creek Fire has burned more than 300,000 acres of land since Monday. Evacuations were ordered in parts of Texas and Oklahoma. 
Texas Governor Greg Abbott's issued disaster declarations for 60 counties as temperatures have soared across the region. On Monday, temperatures in Dallas reached 94 degrees Fahrenheit. Heat records have been broken across the Midwest. In other climate news, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen met with Brazil's Environment Minister Marina Silva in Sao Paulo Tuesday. Silva warned the climate emergency could lead to more global conflict. We are living in a context of wars with terrible losses from a humanitarian point of view, from an ethical, political, social, economic point of view. It is practically unspeakable what is happening in the world with the wars that are happening, and obviously that we want peace. But in the context of climate change, we cannot forget, deny the fact that we can have great instabilities if we do not solve the problem of climate change. A Russian court has sentenced a longtime human rights activist, Oleg Orlov, to two and a half years in prison for speaking out against Russia's invasion of Ukraine and taking part in anti-war demonstrations. Orlov is a leader of the now-liquidated rights group Memorial, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2022 and the Right Livelihood Award in 2004. He briefly spoke Tuesday after the sentencing. We live in the 21st century. Those guys are going backwards to 20th, 17th, and even 16th. Unfortunately, they are dragging our country with them. But we will win anyway. In other news from Russia, the funeral for Alexei Navalny will be held in Moscow on Friday. The Russian opposition leader died nearly two weeks ago in an Arctic prison. His wife, Yulia, addressed the European Parliament earlier today. In Guinea, at least two young protesters were killed Monday as a general strike against military rule paralyzed the capital, Conakry. Clashes broke out between security forces and demonstrators as Guinea's union leaders are demanding an end to media censorship and lower food and living costs. The strike comes one week after the military government, which took power in a 2021 coup, unexpectedly dissolved the transitional government that had been in place since 2022, seizing the passports of government members and freezing their bank accounts. Demonstrations in Guinea have been rare since the coup. Military leaders banned all protests in 2022 and arrested several opposition leaders, activists and journalists. Unions leading the recent strike are also demanding the release of Sekou Jamal Pendessa of the Union of Press Professionals of Guinea, who was arrested in January. In Mexico, two mayoral candidates from the state of Michoacán were killed Monday within hours of each other. Miguel Ángel Zavala and Armando Pérez Luna were preparing to begin their campaigns for mayor of Maravatio in the coming days when they were gunned down in separate incidents. Both candidates were found shot to death in their cars. Many have warned Mexico's upcoming June election could be one of the most violent on record. Michoacán has been at the center of drug cartel fighting over territorial control. Zavala was a gynecologist running with President Andres Manuel López Obrador's party, Morena. Luna was the mayoral candidate for the Conservative National Action Party. In California, the city of San Francisco has issued a formal apology to black residents for supporting policies that perpetuated decades of racism and discrimination.
A resolution was unanimously approved by city supervisors Tuesday, apologizing to the African-American community and their descendants for, quote, decades of systemic and structural discrimination, targeted acts of violence, atrocities, said San Francisco Supervisor Walton, who was the lead proponent of the resolution and the only black member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. But racial justice advocates say an apology is not enough as they continue to pressure San Francisco officials to approve over 100 other proposals for reparations. Boston's the only other U.S. city that's issued a similar apology, while at least nine other states have formally apologized for slavery. And in labor news, thousands of hourly workers at a Mercedes-Benz plant in Vance, Alabama, have signed union cards to join the United Auto Workers. More than half of some 6,000 workers said they support joining the union, a major victory in one of the largest Mercedes-Benz plants in the United States. Workers are demanding higher wages and better working conditions. In a statement, Mercedes worker Jeremy Kimbrell said, quote, We haven't taken this step lightly. For years, we've fallen further behind while Mercedes has made billions, unquote. Earlier this month, the majority of Volkswagen workers at a plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee, signed cards to join the UAW. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we go to Michigan, where over 100,000 voters cast their ballots for uncommitted in yesterday's Democratic primary in protest over President Biden's support for Israel's assault on Gaza. Stay with us. Detroit's Jay Dilla's The Difference. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in Michigan, where President Joe Biden won the Democratic primary Tuesday, but faced a significant backlash over his support for Israel's assault on Gaza. Biden won about 81 percent of the vote, but over 100,000 voters, or more than 13 percent, cast their ballots for uncommitted. 
In recent weeks, the group Listen to Michigan urged Democrats to vote uncommitted to pressure Biden to call on Israel to end its assault on Gaza. Organizers of the campaign had said they were hoping for 10,000 uncommitted votes, pointing to Donald Trump's win of less than 11,000 votes in 2016 to show the significance of that number. Tuesday's vote shows they got 10 times that amount. Michigan is the first major battleground state in the general election to hold its primary. It's also home to one of the largest Arab-American populations in the country. Top White House officials visited Michigan earlier this month to meet with Arab and Muslim leaders after a number of them refused to meet with Biden's campaign manager. The movement to vote uncommitted will likely spread to other states. Organizers of the movement are holding a call with supporters in Minnesota, which will vote next week, and Washington State, which holds its primary March 12th. For more, we're joined by two guests. James Ogby is president of the Arab American Institute. His new opinion piece for Pakistan Today is titled, Why the USA Continues to Fail the Arab World. He's joining us from Utica, New York. We're also joined by former Democratic Congress member from Michigan, Andy Levin. He's joining us from Southfield, Michigan. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! You're a former Congress member, Andy Levin. You're also a former synagogue president. Talk about this uncommitted campaign. For every six votes President Biden got yesterday in the primary, uncommitted got one. Talk about the organizing effort and what message that you hope that those who supported Uncommitted, like yourself, uh, sent to President Biden. Well, good morning, Amy and everyone. I don't have much of a voice left, so sorry about that. Um, it was really an incredible thing, Amy. You know, I've been organizing for peace for 40 years, and I've rarely seen such an organic and authentic movement come together in, as you say, just three weeks, and we got over 100,000 people to vote uncommitted. This was something that grew up out of the Arab American and larger Muslim communities in Michigan, but it had great power among progressives, among Jewish people, Christians, Muslims, people of other faiths, people of no faith. Uh, college campuses were aflame about this. And the idea was that Michigan has this uncommitted box on our ballot, because remember, this is a presidential primary and some other states do the same thing. You're voting to send delegates to a convention so you could vote to send delegates uncommitted. And in fact, we won so many votes, I believe we will send at least one delegate from two congressional districts, the 6th district represented by Debbie Dingell and the 12th district. Uh, represented by Rashida Tlaib. I think the significance of this, Amy, is that the president's people, and maybe the president himself, there's a danger that they see this as sort of like a political problem. We need to send surrogates. We need better messaging. People just need to realize what a disaster Trump would be, which, of course, we can never let him get near the White House again. So they'll come around, all of this. No. This is war. This is the killing of tens of thousands of innocent people, leveling whole neighborhoods, most of the Gaza Strip. We don't just want you to set, use a better message. The message 
from us to the president yesterday was you must change course. You must change course for the sake of your political reelection and because it's the right and necessary thing to do from every point of view, including U.S. national security interests, for God's sake. The message to the president is stop treating what Bibi Netanyahu says as the boundaries of boundary of the possible. You've got to move towards an immediate and permanent ceasefire and an end to this carnage. Free all the hostages, free political prisoners uh, among the Palestinians, including leading longtime prisoners who, if you, if you don't like Hamas, free Marwan Barghouti, who's been in prison for so long, who many Palestinians might support to change the situation there. So we really need actual change in policy, and I think we sent that message strongly last night. Uh, Andy Levin, I wanted to ask you, uh, I was particularly struck by the turnout. The Michigan Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, said that this was a record turnout on Tuesday for a presidential primary, uh, compared to, for instance, South Carolina, where only 4 percent of Democrats uh, uh, voted in the primary. Here we had over, uh, it looks like 50 percent. Uh, could you explain this issue of turnout as well? Well, one thing is that there were more, quite a greater number of Republicans voting or people voting in the Republican primary than the Democratic primary. That's also something that's not great for President Biden. But there was some sense of a contest on that side, right? Even though we all know that Nikki Haley was going to trail by a wide margin. But it is remarkable, Juan. Think about it. We have an incumbent Democratic president running for re-election. We all know he's going to be the nominee. Most Democrats feel like maybe he's done a really great job in other areas. Uh, personally, I was really proud to serve with him in the 117th Congress. I'm proud of the Investing in America agenda that we passed, having some at least a semblance of industrial policy in America for the first time in many decades, and on and on. But what's remarkable is that this 100,000-plus people who voted uncommitted, almost all of them, on wouldn't have showed up but for this. They're mad no, at the president. They would have stayed home. And our message was, wait a minute, that would be a disaster if you stayed home. He won't get the message. He won't understand. Come out and express your rage. Shake your fist at the president and say, look, for most of them, I voted for you in 2020. I'm really mad at you right, right now. And I have to tell you. So that, I think, Jews turn out. And look at East Lansing, where Michigan State University is. Look at Ann Arbor, where the University of Michigan is. It's not just Dearborn and Hamtramck with our incredible, beautiful concentration of Arab American and other Muslim voters. It's also young people across the state and progressives across the state who said, we're your base. We want to win in November. In order to win, we want peace now. Andy Levin, <clears throat> the last time we talked to you, you were a Congress member. You were running for re-election. AIPAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, had invested millions in Democratic primaries to defeat progressives who supported Palestine. Uh, you were one of those. They were 
trying to defeat. Um, you're a self-described Zionist who supports a two-state solution. But earlier, um, uh, before that primary, a former president of AIPAC described you as arguably the most corrosive member of Congress to the U.S.-Israel relationship. Um, can you talk about what happened to you then? You lost that election. Um, but do you see um, your point of view being embraced much—both um, uh, in Michigan and around the country in a way that um, APEC never imagined? I do, Amy. I mean, basically, they spent millions of dollars of dark money. They raised a huge amount of so-called hard money. For my opponent in that primary, who basically towed the APAC line completely. And now they say they're going to spend $100 million in 2022, and evidently the, they've already raised $44 million to take out progressives in Democratic primaries. And much of their money is coming for, from Republican billionaires who don't have any place in a Democratic primary. And shame on us as Democrats if we continue to allow Democratic candidates to take Republican money in Democratic primaries. But here's the situation. This avalanche of mostly dark money coming to try to interfere with Democratic primaries is running into a tsunami of upset by Democratic-based voters who say, the Jewish people deserve self-determination. What about the Palestinian people? And in fact, there is no peace and security for the Jewish people in the Holy Land unless and until we realize the political and human rights of the Palestinian people. And we have to love each other. We have to support each other. We have to find a way to live together. And yes, this is a huge rebuke to that point of view that we must support the Israeli government no matter what they do. I mean, why are we letting Bibi Netanyahu set the boundary of the possible? This man has never been for a just peace for one day in his life. He's actively opposed Palestinian self-determination his whole career. Like some other people we know, he's fighting to stay in office so that he doesn't go to jail. I mean, come on. You could support the people of Israel and the people of Palestine without supporting these horrible policies and this horrible war. I mean, you know, think of the average—I think of myself, Amy, 40 years ago when I was a college student. And if I read what the New York Times reported, for example, that the U.S. was supplying 2,000-pound bombs to Israel, and the IDF was dropping them not just on densely populated areas— but on places where they had told the Palestinians to flee. And then at the end of the article, by the way, we've sent 5,000 more of one type of 2,000-pound bombs to Israel since October. That Andy Levin of 40 years ago is not unlike college students and other young people all around Michigan's campuses and working people saying, whoa, this is unacceptable. And we showed the president that we don't accept it yesterday. Yeah, I'd like to bring in uh, James Zogby to the conversation, uh, get your reaction to the uh, to the vote uh, in Michigan and also uh, whether you think that uh, this uncommitted movement 
could spread across the country, especially now as we head into Super Tuesday on March 5th? Well, look, number one, I want to thank Andy Levin for his leadership. Uh, he was made an enormous difference here, and we're we're so pleased to, uh, to be partnering uh, as as we were in this uh, in this campaign. Uh, secondly, uh, I think message sent a hundred plus thousand uncommitted votes, much larger than anyone anticipated, uh, makes a point. President Biden, you ignore this vote at your risk. Um, and thirdly, I think uh, there frankly is not a need to go any further. And I think that the, it's very clear we can extrapolate from the rest of the states um, what the, the turnout would be um, in November if we ignore uh, this issue and continue to ignore this issue, not only as as the congressman said with the Arab American vote, but with young voters, black voters, we've done polling. My brother John has done polling on this uh, among American voters, not just Arab American voters. The, the 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 impact that the Gaza war is having on voters under 29, the impact it's having on black, Latino and Asian voters who are core to the Democratic coalition is very clear. We just wanted to make a point in Michigan. It was it was the place to make the point. But frankly, it also can be read in Virginia. It can be read in Georgia. It can be read in Pennsylvania. Um, you ignore this war and you continue to offer nothing but anodyne. Uh, well, we're really with you and we feel bad, too. And uh, we're paying attention and working every day. That does not cut it at this point. There is genocide unfolding. People want it to end. Um, the president either is going to have to act decisively to end it, or it's going to have an impact in November. And as the congressman said, as, as the organizers of this movement have been very clear, this is not the abandoned Biden movement. This is the, for God's sake, shape up, or you might lose in November Biden movement. And the, the fact is, is that the president has to listen and change. Um, it's, it's going to be too late for some. Uh, the fact that 30,000 have already died, that famine is on the way, that genocide has continued uh, is going to mean a lot of people are going to say, I can't do this. I just can't do it. But if there's to be any effort at all made to bring some voters back, something dramatic has to happen and change from the White House to say, let's give them another shot. But frankly, right now we're having trouble finding that message. And I think Michigan sends a very strong signal that doesn't have to be repeated anywhere else. Look, when I saw the Emerson College poll out the day before uh, this vote, I said message sent. They had 11 percent. We got a little, you know, we did, we did a little better than that. Um, they said youth vote was voting uncommitted. We did that. We showed that in college towns across the street. We won uncommitted one in Dearborn, it beat Joe Biden. Uncommitted one in Hantramic, it beat Joe Biden. Those are the two concentrations of Arab American voters. Um, the president needs to pay attention, and and I hope he does. And I, I you know, and, and I hope he does in a way that is decisive and clear, and actually turns the corner. And James Hockney, of course, in Michigan, the participation of elected officials like Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and other local Michigan officials did have an impact on that vote. Do you see other Democratic Party officials in other states following that lead? Well, look, we've already seen city councils in 70 cities do this. 
Um, and th that number is growing. Uh, there is it not just among uh, Arab American, like, I, you know, we saw a lot of that in Michigan. We also saw black officials. We saw progressive Jewish officials. And uh, as important as Rashida was, Andy Levin was an important message sender here that this is a broader movement for justice. And let's not forget that city councilwoman in Detroit came out just a couple of days before the vote saying, I'm with uncommitted. That's important. Uh, having black elected officials, Arab American elected officials, progressive Jewish elected officials saying, we want this to end and we want President Biden to make a difference. That's important. And so, yeah, I think this is going to have a, a, a sort of a, an effect across the country. Um, and we don't need to do it in other states. We just don't, because the message is very clear. Number one, you don't win Michigan. There's no way to create an electoral map that you win the you win in November. But number two, we can extrapolate what happens in Michigan and say, hmm, it's going to happen in Virginia. It's going to happen in Georgia. You're going to lose youth vote, black vote, Arab American vote, and you don't win Pennsylvania if that's the case. So I think, you know, I've been doing this for a long, long time. And, uh, and I know that these voter groups have to have a reason to turn out. I think what was important about this, and Congressman, I thank you and, and others for it, was that you gave people a reason to turn out. These uncommitted voters would not have turned out, and they would not turn out again in November if they didn't have a reason to turn out. We gave them a reason with uncommitted. Joe Biden's got to give them a reason in November. And talk, Jim Zogby, about the other states. Uh, talk about Minnesota and other states who are now apparently adopting this uncommitted uh, vote. But in Michigan, what's different, right, is it's actually printed on the ballot. And I think you can also add, I mean, most people didn't—they talked about Dean Phillips, uh, but Marion Williamson, who suspended her campaign, came in third, and she was the one Democrat for a ceasefire. So you could probably add her votes to the uncommitted votes. For example, uh, the Arab community said, let's back Marianne Williamson, even though she dropped out because she's on the ballot and there is no other option. Look, I, 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 let, let me say, I'm not going to discourage anybody from trying to do it in other states. I just, like I said, I don't think you need to. And I, I would rather have energy focused on city council resolutions and getting people to sign on to ceasefire uh, resolutions across the board. Um, I, there is a um, I, I did the Palestine statehood resolutions in uh, 1988 with Jesse Jackson. We passed them in 11 states. We got to the national convention, had the first ever uh debate from the podium on a minority plank. After that, everybody continued doing it. But without Jesse in the mix, we never had the the, the momentum to carry it through. We had a, a number of ideal things come together in Michigan, a huge concentration of Arab Americans, the support of elected officials, local elected officials, mayors, state reps, et cetera, city council people. We also had Congressman Levin, who was great on college campuses in terms of mobilizing and bringing people forward, and a great collection of organizers and a budget to make it happen. We're not going to have that in Minnesota. We're not going to have that in other states. And so I don't want to see people set up for failure. And so I think you take what happened in Michigan, you extrapolate it to your state, you send the message to President Biden, it happened here, it can happen elsewhere. There's no need to try to replicate what can't be automatically replicated, given the ideal com composition of forces in Michigan that made this happen. Um, 
And so I, I, I frankly think I don't know what's going to happen in other states, but I don't want to take a defeat in Minnesota because it's not even on the damn ballot and say, oh, look, it's it's and give the other side a crowing. Right. They're going to try whatever they can do to crow and say, we really didn't. They didn't accomplish anything because uh, uh, the 81 percent still voted for Joe Biden. Well, of course, 81 voted for Joe Biden. But that's not going to mean November, uh, because in the Emerson poll, Joe Biden's losing by two points. 11% uncommitted and Joe Biden loses by two points. Hmm. Does that DMFI, Democratic Majority for Israel, don't you get what that means? That means that you need that 11% to come to your side in order to put you over the top. Um, that we can we can say that in every state without having to go through this whole process, especially when it's not even on the ballot and you can't really get the same outcome you get in Michigan. We're going to end with Andy Levin. Um, you come from a political dynasty. Your uncle was the um, uh, late senator who headed the Armed Services Committee, Carl Levin, I'm sure a close friend of uh, President Biden, uh, your father, uh, congressman as well, Sandy Levin. What do you think they would say at this point about this movement, about this demand and grassroots organizing? Well, Amy, Uncle Carl passed away, as you know, several years ago. My dad is 92 and going strong. And he is really proud of what I'm doing. Uh, he, you know, ha was involved in helping Soviet Jews flee to Israel. He, ha you know, he's supported uh, U.S. policy uh, for a two-state solution forever. But I think he understands that there is no way now, after 54 years of occupation, and things going in the wrong direction, there's no way forward unless the president of the United States steps up and leads much more strongly as a peacemaker. And look, I'm going to end on a hopeful note. Joe Biden, with this long history as chair, of chairing the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, and he, you know, every, he says he's known all the Israeli leaders, all the Palestinian leaders. You've got to step up, Mr. President, and now end this carnage and lead a diplomatic effort, not a military effort, to end this conflict. It can be done. You've got to step up and do it, both because it's the right thing to do and because your politics depend on it. As Jim Zogby said, the other states are fine. Michigan is a must-win state. Minnesota isn't, you know, for example. Uh, he's going to win Minnesota anyway, I think. But you've got to win Michigan to put the Electoral College math together. And I think it's just going to be hard to do unless you change course. So let's get going. Well, clearly, President Biden's hearing people. Um, when he was with Seth Meyers the other night, the late night comic in an ice cream store, as he was licking his mint chip ice cream, a reporter asked a question about a ceasefire. And he said, yes, he thinks it's going to happen on Monday. That surprised both Israel and Hamas. Uh, we'll see what happens. But it was on the eve of the Michigan primary that he said that. Andy Levin, I want to thank you for being with us, former Democratic Congress member from Michigan. 
Michigan, and James Ogby, president of the Arab American Institute. When we come back, we look at the death of Aaron Bushnell, the active-duty member of the U.S. Air Force who set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., to protest U.S. support for the war in Gaza. Stay with us. Was a friend of mine. He was a friend of mine. Every time I think of him, I just can't keep from crying. Cause he was a friend of mine. Died on the road He Died on the road He just kept on moving Never reaped what he could sow And he Was a friend of mine a friend of mine, Willie Nelson. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. A warning to our audience. This segment contains graphic images and descriptions. On the morning of February 25th, Aaron Bushnell, a 25-year-old active-duty member of the U.S. Air Force, posted on Facebook a link to the video live-streaming service Twitch, with a caption that read, quote, "'Many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery, or the Jim Crow South, or apartheid? What would I do if my country was committing genocide?' The answer is, you're doing it right now," he wrote. Aaron Bushnell then sent a copy of his will that he had prepared days before to a friend. In it, he gave his cat to his neighbor to be cared for. A few hours later, shortly before 1 p.m. local time, Aaron Bushnell walked towards the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., wearing his Air Force uniform. He began the live stream on his phone and spoke as he approached the embassy gates. I'm an active duty member of the United States Air Force, and I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. Aaron Bushnell then placed his phone on the ground, stood in front of the Israeli embassy gate, 
and doused himself in a liquid before setting himself on fire. He shouted, Free Palestine, several times as he was consumed by the flames. Those were his last words. An officer who arrived on the scene can be seen brandishing a gun and pointing it at Aaron Bushnell as he burns alive and collapses to the ground. Another officer sprays him with a fire extinguisher. As the first officer continues to point his gun at Aaron, the second officer yells, quote, I don't need guns. I need a fire extinguisher. Aaron Bushnell was taken to a nearby hospital and pronounced dead several hours later. His extreme act of protest against Israel's assault on Gaza made headlines around the world. Vigils have been held in his honor in Washington, D.C., here in New York, and San Antonio, Texas, and Portland, and elsewhere. Ali Abunima, the founder of the Electronic Intifada, wrote on social media, quote, Aaron Bushnell gave his life so that America would hear his message and the genocide. He kept calling free Palestine through intense horrifying pain. He gave his life so people in Gaza might live. There's no greater love than that. I feel sadness and awe for this human being, Ali wrote. For more, we're joined by two guests. Anne Wright is a 29-year U.S. Army, Army Reserves veteran, who retired as a colonel and a former U.S. diplomat. In March of 2003, she resigned. She has since worked with the anti-war groups Code Pink and Veterans for Peace. She is co-author of Dissent, Voices of Conscience. Her new essay, For Common Dreams, is headlined, Why Would Anyone Kill Themselves to Stop a War?, on Aaron Bushnell and others. She's joining us from Hawaii. She resigned in 2003 over the war in Iraq. And joining us from Southfield, Michigan, is Levi Pierpoint, who was a friend of Aaron Bushnell. They met at basic training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, in May 2020. Levi went on to become a conscientious objector. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, this is a very difficult segment to do. Levi, we want to begin with you. You were a friend of Aaron. Tell us about him, and then tell us when you learned what had happened. Um, tell us about how you met, your decision to become a conscientious objector. He stayed in the military. And what you then understand uh, took place this weekend. Yes, so I met Aaron Bushnell in basic training. And from the first day that I met him, I, I could tell that he was just a really sweet person. Um, I could tell very quickly that he had a strong sense of justice. We became friends, and um, whenever people in basic training would, would talk about me or would talk about him, we would stick up for each other, and he always stuck up for me. And I did end up getting out as a conscientious objector, and we spoke throughout that process. And at the time that that I began to make headway with the process and it began to near its end. Uh, I got out in July of 2023. He felt like he was already close enough to his own um, end date that, that he decided not to take the same path. And I understood that because the conscientious objector process can take over a year. And so I knew that he was still in, and then he went to do Skillbridge in Ohio, and that's when I met him in Toledo. 
on January 5th. And that was the first time I'd seen him since basic training, and it was unfortunately the last time I saw him. And, and of course, you know, the other day I, I heard what had happened, so. And our deepest condolences to you, by the way, Levi. When you heard, did you first hear that a man had self-immolated and then hear that it was Aaron? Yes. So I had just seen the headlines. I don't think I had even clicked one and, and read anything yet. And yeah, um, Monday, Monday, a friend of mine reached out to me and she knew that I had been a conscientious objector, knew that I had been in the Air Force and knew that just the story in general might be difficult for me. She had no idea that I knew him. And she was the one who ultimately texted me his name. And I just immediately broke down and called her. And, and I said, that was my friend. I went to basic training with him. And she comforted me. And, and I just thought about all the conversations we had. I went back to the last text message I got from him. And, and I just... I just weeped. And, and Levi, uh, in those conversations, uh, did you get a sense of why Aaron initially decided to join the military and how his views evolved about the, uh, the, the U.S. military? Yes. I know when we first talked, we shared similar, similar goals and interests in the military. We wanted to sort of get out of our bubble to explore the United States, to explore the world, to meet people from other backgrounds. And so I remember when we both found out where we were stationed, it, it was kind of ironic. I found out I'd be stationed in Minot Air Force Base, and he found out he was going to be going back to Lackland where we went, we went to basic training. And so we both felt like maybe we were going to explore a little bit less than we thought. But we were ready for our careers. And I know that over the years, um, both of us shifted, of course, in our beliefs regarding war, largely because of what we saw in the military, largely because of, of the things that we learned because we were a part of it. And I know that um, he and I both were encouraged by, by um, people on YouTube that were writing video essays about social justice movements in the United States. Uh, I'd like to bring in uh, Anne Wright to the conversation. Uh, this issue of uh, self-immolation, we've already had two now in protest of the war in Gaza. But you noted that uh, during the Vietnam War, as many as five Americans uh, self-immolated themselves in protest against the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. You wrote about that recently for Common Dreams. Yes, uh, it's a it's a sad situation for sure. I mean, our hearts go out to Aaron's family and Aaron's friends. Uh, and the same back in, you know, 60 years ago, almost now, uh, in 1965, as the U.S. war on Vietnam was starting up, first we had an 82-year-old Quaker woman, Alice Hertz, committed suicide by self-immolation, and then followed about six months later by another Quaker, Norman Morrison uh, from Baltimore, who went to the Pentagon and uh, set himself on fire, little knowing the place that he had picked at the Pentagon was right below where Secretary of Defense uh, McNamara had his office. And apparently his uh, self-immolation had uh, an, um, 
a strong effect on McNamara, although he didn't stop the war initially, but it did have an effect uh, on him personally and on his family, and then followed uh, by a young man in Sandy, uh, first in, in New York at the UN Plaza. Uh, so, yes, there were five people that that burned themselves to death over a political decision of the United States to go to war. And so now we have, uh, you know, 60 years later, we have two people in less than three months who have done the same I would say, courageous act of taking their own lives to bring the attention of the American public and the world uh, to what the United States is complicit in, which is the Israeli genocide and U.S. genocide of the Palestinians in Gaza. I just wanted to go through a few more of those examples in history um, that sent shockwaves um, through multiple conflicts. You had Thich Quang Duc, a monk who drew attention to the treatment of Vietnamese Buddhists by the government. And then Mohammed Bouazizi in Tunisia, who sparked the Arab Spring when he set himself on fire. This was before Egypt, and that sparked the uprising in Tunisia. Maliki Richter, a musician who called for an end to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. A pro-Palestine protester also self-immolated outside the Israeli consulate in Atlanta in December, but we don't know her name. It hardly got um, any attention. And there's been a whole debate in the media right now. Um, those who talk about it as don't even want to talk. I mean, I think as it started when papers like The New York Times didn't even say he said free Palestine and other outlets as well. But then as time went on, they did talk about what happened. But the whole issue of uh, going into a debate about mental illness and not wanting to encourage something like this versus you hear someone like Ali Abu Nima talking about Aaron's incredible bravery. Your thoughts? Well, it is incredibly brave. And a person, well, uh, there's no evidence at all that Aaron had any sort of, of uh, uh, mental illness. He was a, a very conscientious person who saw what the U.S. was doing in, in his position in the U.S. military. And one might say, you know, he's not the first person to have committed suicide over what the United States has been doing. If you look, 22 veterans a day commit suicide over what they've done in the U.S. military. So this is—what uh, Aaron did was very, very courageous. I can't imagine, uh, you know, taking that step. Uh, it, was, it was an act of courage, an act of bravery to call attention to U.S. policies. Uh, Levi Pierpont, I wanted to ask you, you grew up as an evangelical Christian. Aaron Bushnell attended Catholic religious services while at basic training. How do you think his religious views uh, informed uh, uh, his uh, beliefs and, and ultimately his action? I think, I think ultimately, by the time that he did what he did, uh, he didn't identify with any particular religion, but I know that for me, even though um, even though I'm more agnostic than I grew up, uh, my evangelical roots still influence me. They influence my sense of justice, and they and they told me since I was a young child that you have to stand up for what you believe in, and I can imagine that it was the same way for Aaron. And so, even though he 
I don't believe that he still believed in, in the Catholic faith by the time that he died. I know that that upbringing had a profound impact on him, and I'm sure that it influenced his sense of justice. Levi Pierpont, Aaron was spending, was living in San Antonio, where Lackland Base is. Um, he was doing a lot of um, uh, mutual aid work with people who are unsheltered there, uh, very well-known in those encampments. Um, what do you want us to remember him by, as you think about him in these last few days, what you're talking about in the vigils and with your friends? I want people to remember that his death is not in vain, that he died to spotlight this message. I don't, I don't want anybody else to die this way. If he had asked me about this, I would have begged him not to. I would have done anything I could to stop him. But obviously we can't get him back, and we have to honor the message that he left. I would have told him that this wasn't necessary to get the message out. I would have told him that there were other ways. But, but seeing the way that the media responds now, now that this has happened, it's hard not to feel like he was right, that this was exactly what was necessary to get people's attention about the genocide that's happening in Palestine. And so I just I want people to remember his message. And, uh, Anne Wright, uh, your sense of how the movement here in this country to stop this genocidal uh, war in, in Gaza uh, has been building and what uh, Aaron Bushnell's sacrifice uh, may contribute to that? Well, it's a huge, huge movement, and the Biden administration must uh, recognize it, as your previous uh, guest uh, said. I mean, the, the voters are telling them a message. Uh, this is a massive, massive movement of youth, of of people of all religions that are saying by any religious uh, uh, teachings, this killing uh, is wrong. It has to end. And I would say to Levi, you know, we have Veterans for Peace and we have About Face, veterans organizations that would like to offer you support because this is tough, really tough. But we, it's for the people of Gaza, the people of Palestine, that we do this to stop these horrible, horrible policies that our country has right now. The killing of innocent people uh, for the United States and for Israel. It has to end and ceasefire now. And I understand there is a Gaza flotilla being organized. We only have 30 seconds. Can you explain what that is? Yes, we need to take action. I mean, right now there's there's lots of talk. There are trucks that are stalled all over uh, northern Egypt and our Gaza flotilla movement. Uh, we are going to be doing something soon, and we will let you all know, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, as soon as we get the plans for uh, challenging again the Israeli naval blockade of Gaza. And do you know, Levi, as we have just 10, 15 seconds, would Aaron have described this as suicide? No, absolutely not. Explain. It was—he he didn't have thoughts of suicide. 
he had thoughts of justice. That's what this was about. It wasn't about his life. It was about using his life to send a message. I want to thank you both so much for being with us. Levi Pierpont, dear friend of Aaron Bushnell, he, Levi, is a conscientious objector and Anne Wright, 20-year U.S. Army vet. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us.